Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. What's up, Stevens Creek Church? You guys doing good? All right. It's the I love this Sunday. This is the best dressed Sunday of the year. Because look, you got your Christmas shirts on, your Christmas socks, all your new jeans that Grandma got you. Wearing a shirt from mom and dad. Thank you, guys. This is, so this, this is the one time of year my wardrobe gets an upgrade. So I'm always excited to, to preach in a new shirt. But it's also exciting because it's football time. How many of you are Alabama fans? All right. Three of you. How many are Clemson? All right. How many of you felt strongly that Georgia should have been playing yesterday? Okay. All right. Just making sure I was still in the right place. All right. But it's great to be back. We drove from Texas with four children, which I don't recommend, the day after Christmas. Uh, and so like eight hours into the trip, we're stopping at this gas station, uh, and I did something I've never done. I left one of our children at a gas station, briefly. All right? So so what happened. I get out. You know, it's been eight hours, and just, it's, it's been rough. And so kind of peel my fingers off of the steering wheel and, and Chatham, our three-year-old, is like, Daddy, I got to pee, which he says like every 20 minutes. His bladder is the smallest thing. And so I, I'm holding him. I get out. I look in this gas station. It's one of those one-seaters where you got to wait. And the line is backed up, almost coming out the door. And I'm like, this line is crazy. We're out. So I hop back in the van and I drive off, right, looking for the next thing. And a little while down the road, our, our 13-year-old Cooper, just real nonchalantly, in the backseat looks over and he's like, Where's Connor? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he's not here. And, <laughs> and so we turn around. Four kids is that number where you have to start counting it, I've realized. And so one, two, three, four, one, two. And I only got to three. And sure enough, one was missing. And so I, I, I go straight back to the gas station, run inside. And, and, and Connor is still like in line because it had been a while, but he, the line was long. And so I played it off, right? Like it didn't happen. Like, hey, buddy. Hey, you're still in line wondering where you were. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just waiting and stuff. And so I played it off. I thought it was all good and th- that I had, that, that he would never know. And then I got back in the car and our seven-year-old was like, mommy and daddy forgot you. They drove off. So Connor, thanks for being a good sport. I, we love, we love you. We'll never leave you again. Promise. But before you judge me, parents, open your Bible, okay? Because not only does it say don't judge, but even more importantly, Jesus' parents that God handpicked to take care of the Savior of the world, when Jesus was about the same age as you, Connor, lost him in a big city for three days, okay? This is in your Bible. You're looking at me like, that's not in there. It's in there. You read it. It was a whole day before they even knew he was gone. I knew within five minutes. All right, five minutes. So... It's a great story. It helps parents. It really, God put it in there to be like, hey, parents, you're going to appreciate this. Like, I picked Joseph and Mary, lost the kid for three days. It's hilarious. They found him, so it's, not, so it's good. So there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that encourages parents like us. But wh- whether you took an epic road trip from Texas, whether you drove from just straight down the street, whether you drove from uh, Anderson, South Carolina, welcome Danny and Lauren, good to see you guys. Wherever you might have come from today, 
Uh, man, we're glad you're here. And I believe you're not here by accident. I believe God has got something very significant. He wants to share with you on the last Sunday of 2018 as we look out on the horizon of a new year. Because what we're talking about today, what the message is about today, is a topic in Scripture that I firmly believe is the biggest difference maker between a happy life and an angry life. I believe that this topic is the biggest difference maker between a healthy relationship and a broken relationship. And I firmly believe that what we're talking about today is the single best way to end a year and the single best way to start a new year. But it's also perhaps the most misunderstood topic in the Bible. And because it's so misunderstood, we get it wrong or we don't do it at all. And when that happens, man, there's a lot of carnage that takes place. But when we get this one thing right, it will set you free. It will change your life. And we're talking today about the topic of forgiveness And if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew, 5th chapter, which is the start of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching the longest recorded sermon in the Bible, the most powerful sermon ever preached, world-changing, life-changing words of truth are uh, are all through this message of, of, of Jesus. And he's talking a lot about forgiveness. And at first he sets the stage by telling us a lot of the things that we tend to do wrong that stand in the way of us really experiencing giving forgiveness the way that we should and the peace that comes when we give it. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. If you have your Bible, you can follow along, or if you have a Bible app on your phone. And if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, by the way, it's free. Put the Bible on your phone, download it, make that a New Year's resolution, and just have the Bible with you every day. And when you've got even a few minutes in a waiting room to make sure that you pull it up and instead of just scrolling through social media, spend those few extra minutes in God's word. I think it'll change your life. But we're going to pick it up in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you were even angry with someone, you were subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot... You're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Jesus has got some strong words here. I mean some like sobering strong words. He's saying, look, Every faith system in the world, every belief system in the world, even atheists will agree that murder is bad. But I'm telling you that it's, it's a different standard. I don't just care what you do with your hands and with your weapons, even though that obviously matters a lot. I care what happens in your heart. I care what's happening in your mind because that reveals what's really going on. That reveals who you really are at the core. And God wants that part to be totally in line with him. It's not enough to just restrain yourself from killing somebody, though I hope you do. God also wants you to to purge yourself of this bitterness that we can have towards other people. You know, in the New Living Translation I just read, it said, if you call someone an idiot or if you curse someone, then then you're in danger of, of like losing yourself in that. In the original language, and they print this word in a lot of the translations of the Bible... The, the Aramaic word that Jesus actually used. It said, if you look at a brother, if you look at someone and you say, Raka, R-A-C-A, and it's in there just to capture that guttural sense of what Jesus was saying. Raka really means worthless. Jesus is saying, if you look at someone and you think, worthless, I've removed their humanity. They're not worthy of my forgiveness. 
then you're actually destroying a piece of your own humanity. You're damaging a piece of your own soul. Because if you look at someone whom God said is priceless and you call them worthless, then you're calling God a liar. And you're looking at the world through broken lenses of your own pride. You're playing God. Jesus is saying we we can't go through life putting those kind of labels on people. Because all of us, all of us have sinned. When we're looking at somebody and saying they don't deserve my forgiveness... We usually will put our own label on them. It might not be raka, but we'll define them in terms only of what they did to hurt us. That guy is a cheater. That's all he is, is a cheater. He cheated on our family. He broke his vow. That's it. That's all he is. He's just a worthless cheater. He is raka. She is a liar. I trusted her. She lied to me. She stabbed me in the back. That's all she is. She is a liar. She is raka. She is a thief. He is a this. She is a that. And we fill in the blank. And we use those names and those labels as a way to make ourselves feel better and also to justify withholding forgiveness from somebody else because they're not worthy. They're not even human. They're not a human. They're just a cheater. They're not human. They're just a thief. They're not human. They're just a liar. And Jesus wants us to remember that all of us have been thieves. All of us have been cheats. All of us have been liars. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all have the same desperate need for God's grace in our life. And when we withhold forgiveness from somebody else, then we're we're poisoning ourselves. And so the first principle, whenever Jesus tells you to do something, it's not just for the good of the other people you're helping. It's always for your good too. When Jesus tells you to forgive, it's because forgiveness is the best thing for you. So the first principle, if you're filling in the blanks in in the notes, is this, that holding a grudge doesn't make you strong. It makes you bitter. And forgiving doesn't make you weak. It sets you free. And Jesus came to give you freedom. He doesn't want you to be bound up in this prison of unforgiveness. And it's so easy to get trapped there. It's a cage that we lock ourselves in. And Jesus is saying, would you walk out of that cage? So why do we withhold forgiveness? Well, I think in part because we misunderstand what it is. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I think in part too, because when we hold on to a grudge, it gives us the illusion of control and of power over somebody who made us feel powerless. Because when somebody hurt you, when they wronged you, when they cheated you, when they abused you, you, were, you felt powerless, and it's a terrible feeling. And there's something about holding on to this grudge and replaying in your mind all of the revenge scenarios that you'd like for them to feel, all the pain you want them to feel. It, it's intoxicating at first. It makes us feel like we're in control of a situation that had made us feel out of control. But it's poison. That intoxicating feeling is a poison. It will, it will numb your very soul. It will, it, will, it will kill you. Nobody wins. And so Jesus goes to the next level with this forgiveness thing. And just in case there was any misunderstanding, he's saying, I'm not just suggesting that you forgive. I'm not just saying you'll feel better if you forgive, even though you will. I'm not just saying that you should, you should, let, yourself, you should let yourself experience it. I'm commanding it. Forgiveness is something we're commanded to do. We, we have to do it. We have to forgive others. We even sometimes have to forgive ourselves. Because for some of us, when we say raka, we're saying it when we look in the mirror. Because we're, we're punishing ourselves because of what we've done in the past. We're saying that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross wasn't really enough to forgive us because of all we've done. And so we live with this shame trying to punish ourselves, and we end up wounding ourselves and others with that broken mindset. We've got to forgive. Jesus says it this way. Again, 
My words on this don't matter. But what Jesus says means everything. This, to me, is one of the scariest verses in the whole Bible. Like, I, I just kind of shiver whenever I read this one. You know, it's, it's, it's like a little bit. It's, it's, when we really think about what Jesus is saying right here, it should change the way that we live. Because I don't know about you, I love the verses about grace. I love the verses about God's love, about how nothing can separate us from God's love, about how he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, about how we're made new, we're a new creation in Christ. I love, there's on every page of the Bible a message of grace that God loves us and forgives us no matter what we've done and we have limitless access to God's grace. Man, those are the verses I like to turn into refrigerator magnets that I like to highlight and underline. But then there's this verse that I don't, I don't have underlined in my Bible, if I'm just being honest. I mean, it's, it's, it's something I need to underline, but it scares me when I read it. And so here it is. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. I mean, that should be sobering because we all have a desperate, constant need for grace to be in right standing with God. It's a grace we can't earn or deserve, just like that song, The Reckless Love of God. I, I can't earn it. I, I can't deserve it. But still, you give yourself away. It's so true. It, he gives it freely. We can't earn it. And yet, yet, we can determine the level of God's grace in our life by the level of grace we extend to others. Later, to, to teach on the same passage, Jesus says that. To, the measure you use to forgive others is the measure that God uses for you. So if we want limitless access to God's grace, which we all need, then we've got to give limitless access to grace to the people in our lives. But yet that's not what we do, right? Because we like to keep score, man. When somebody wrongs us, we keep score. We want, we want them to suffer for it. We want to get them back for it. We want to repay them. But it's no way to live. It's just absolutely no way to live. I think sometimes, though, we do want to forgive. And we just don't know how. Like, if we're honest, we're like, you know, I'd like to forgive. But what does that mean? Does it mean that what they did doesn't matter? Does it mean that they're off the hook? Does it mean that I hit a delete button in my brain and and we just move on and, and pretend that things are normal? Does it mean that I have to live in this weird codependent kind of relationship with an unhealthy person who wounds me every time we're around each other? No, that's not what forgiveness means. In fact, sometimes forgiveness doesn't mean that you're restoring that relationship, even though God's primary purpose for our lives is, is relationships. He wants our relationships res restored, first and foremost with Him, that's what Jesus came to do is to make right our relationship with God, to build a bridge we never could have built to put us in right standing with God once we put our faith in Christ, but then also to, to help us have healthy relationships with each other. In that passage, Jesus said, if you're at church, you know, if you're making a sacrifice at church, if they're passing the offering plate at church and you remember, there's somebody that I need to forgive. There's somebody who I need to seek their forgiveness. He said, get up and leave church. Leave in the middle of a sermon if you have to. And go make that phone call. Go make that relationship right. There's nothing more important than that. God wants us to be in healthy relationships. But sometimes forgiving doesn't mean that you're instantly pursuing a restored relationship because that person isn't in a place yet where they, they can be in a healthy relationship. 
Like there's, there's such brokenness still in them that you need to forgive and you need to pray for them. You need to do everything you can do to live at peace. You need to do everything you can do to build a bridge to make that relationship possible again. But you don't need to make yourself a punching bag. You don't need to, to be a doormat to somebody. And this is a whole separate sermon series. But if you've got relationships in your life where there's that kind of constant tension of you're in this unhealthy cycle with an unhealthy person, I'm going to recommend a book including the Bible is always the, the book to recommend. This is a book based on the Bible and also based on a lot of great research. And it's a book called Boundaries by doctors John Townsend and Henry Cloud. And if you need to learn how to create some loving, healthy boundaries where you're forgiving and you're not holding on to bitterness, but you're also not letting somebody wound you over and over again, that's a great one to recommend. That's, somebody in here needs, needs that today. It's a little bit off topic, but it's really, really important. So what is forgiveness, right? That's kind of the million dollar question. So if we're supposed to forgive, what is it? If it's not just letting somebody off the hook, it's not saying what you did didn't matter, then, then what, what is it? So simplest definition I can come up with is, is something like this. Forgiveness is a choice to pursue restoration instead of revenge when someone has wronged you. Now, it's a choice, first off. It's not a feeling. You're never going to feel like forgiving. So much like love, which is also not a feeling, but a choice, an action, a commitment, forgiveness is a deliberate choice. I'm choosing to forgive. And it's often not just a one-time choice. It has to be sometimes a minute-by-minute choice because that replay reel in your head can keep reminding you. That's what Satan likes to do, by the way. That's one of his biggest tricks is that he wants you to live in regret and bitterness and shame and anger and so he'll try to hit that replay button in your head as many times as he can of replaying that and get you to fixate on it. And Jesus is saying, I want, you, I want to renew your mind. I want to change your thoughts. I want to help you focus on that which is good and right and pure and lovely and admirable. You know, right after our, our last service, a young lady came up to me and, and just really needed to talk and sat down. And, and with tears in her eyes, she talked about how she grew up with just some horrific sexual abuse. People that in her family that should have been the ones loving her and protecting her were just abusing her in, in the worst kinds of ways. And she just, in a very honest, heartfelt way, she says, I don't know how to let go of that. I don't know how to move forward from that. I don't know how, how to give forgiveness for something like that. And, you know, we, we prayed and owned the fact that, that on this side of heaven, those, those wounds might not ever fully heal. But yet God is a God of grace, and he is a God of redemption. And while God's heart breaks too when you experience that unimaginable kind of pain, He's the same God that wants to carry you through the long journey towards healing and, and forgiving someone to do something that repugnant and disgusting. It isn't letting them off the hook. It's entrusting them to God who's the only one who's able to bring about justice. He's also the only one able to bring about revenge. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And if we try to get in that game of wanting, to, wanting others to hurt the way that we've hurt, it only hurts us more. It's been said holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And God wants us to stop drinking the poison of replaying these reels in our head, seeing ourselves as a victim when God says, no, I've set you free. And even if those thoughts creep into your mind daily, even if they creep into your mind minute by minute, let that be a minute by minute reminder to turn to me and to give that to me and to let me carry you through that pain. And it's a long road to healing when the wounds are that deep. It usually requires long times of counseling. It requires many nights of just praying, sometimes angry prayers, sometimes crying prayers, but God will be there with you through it all. He will carry you through it. And if you are one of the many that carry wounds like that, just know 
God is with you. And forgiving doesn't mean that what they did to you didn't matter. It doesn't mean that they're even off the hook. It means that you're entrusting that to God. And some of you today, you need to let go of a grudge you're holding against someone who's dead and gone. Some of you are being controlled from beyond the grave by someone who is already dead in the ground because of what they did to you or what they said to you. And you need to stop letting them control you. You need to, you need to say, Lord, enough is enough. I turn that over to you. And I'm going to accept an apology that never actually comes. Because I'll never hear that person say they're sorry. But Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to release that pain and that anger and all of that. And let your grace start to flow in. And I'm going to move forward with my life, not seeing myself as a victim, but seeing myself as your child, set free, made whole, and made new. That's the way God wants you to live. On this side of heaven, there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be evil. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be people that hurt you. Sometimes they mean to, sometimes they don't. They're just broken like all of us, and they hurt you by accident. But all of those wounds are wounds that God wants to bring healing to. He wants to bring forgiveness to you for what you've done. And he wants to help you release, release that anger, that need to control, that need to get even and experience the freedom and the joy and the grace and the lightness. I just pray some of us today walk out of here feeling lighter than we've ever felt because you've been carrying a weight you were never meant to carry. Jesus went to the cross to take that for you. Now, with all that being said, there are gonna be times where you forgive somebody and the healthiest thing you can do is to not be in a relationship with them. Now, I'm going to read a verse that I bet you've never heard in a sermon. You might be 100 years old and have been in church every Sunday of your life, and I'm going to bet you that you have never heard this verse ever in a sermon. So I'm excited to read it, because every word of the Bible is in there for a purpose. And so, setting the stage, this is from the Apostle Paul, who knew what grace was. He taught us more about forgiveness forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, embracing God's grace in our life than anybody because he needed it. He was a terrorist before he came to Christ, an actual terrorist before he came to Christ, hunting down Christians. So I don't know what you've done, but you're probably not a terrorist, right? So like Paul, when he said, I'm the worst of all sinners, he meant it. He understood what grace meant. If God can save me, he can save anybody. If what Jesus did on the cross is enough for me, it's enough for anybody. Trust me, I get what grace is and why we all need it. So this is from Paul who knew what grace was, gave it freely, but also had the common sense to know that sometimes forgiving somebody doesn't mean that you want to instantly trust them. So, from 2 Timothy, this is a letter to his protege, Timothy. He writes this. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. There are warnings like this Paul gives, specific warnings. Now, this isn't gossip. This isn't something Paul posted on Facebook. Hey, watch out for Alexander. He's a jerk. This is actually from a one-on-one letter. We're reading somebody else's mail when we read most of the New Testament. This is a personal letter that Paul wrote to his friend, Timothy. And Paul is saying, look, there's this guy, Alexander. He's in your community. I'm sure you know him, the coppersmith. This guy can't be trusted. He wounded me deeply. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He'll pretend to be your friend, and he'll stab you in the back. And you need to be careful of him. Now, I've forgiven him. I'm trusting God to make things right. I'm trusting God if there's any judgment or punishment or any of that. That's God's business. But I'm warning you as a friend, be careful of this guy. Because he will hurt you if he gets the chance. 
Sometimes the most Christian thing you can do is to speak an honest truth. This isn't, again, gossip. This isn't whispering around, oh, can you believe so-and-so? But one-on-one in a very specific situation. If you see somebody, a friend of yours, and they're in a dating relationship or in a, in a close relationship with somebody who you know to be, you know to be through experience very dishonest or disloyal or whatever, sometimes the most Christian thing you can do is to have the courage to say, listen, this might wound our relationship, but, but I, I've just, I would want you to tell me that you should be careful with this person, and here is why. Here is what they did that I've seen with my own eyes. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not gossiping. I'm just saying, me to you, one-to-one, as somebody who cares about you, watch out for this person. Because forgiveness does not equal trust. Sometimes we as Christians misunderstand, and we think that because we're, we're Christians and we're supposed to be nice, which we are, it means we can't ever speak a hard truth. But we have to speak the truth in love, but you have to speak it. If being a Christian doesn't mean you have to give a bad restaurant five stars on Yelp, okay? It doesn't mean that. Don't say, oh, it was great when it wasn't. Because then I'm going to read your review and I'm going to go there and say, this burrito tastes like an armpit. And my friend on Yelp said, it's great. And you're like, well, really, it wasn't. I just wanted to be nice. I'm like, well, you lied. I want my money back from you. So we need to sometimes speak the truth in love. And if something isn't good, we don't have to call it good. So what's the principle? Here it is. This, this is so important in relationships. This right here. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. Everyone should receive your forgiveness. Not everyone should receive your trust. That should set you free, by the way. Because I think the biggest thing that holds us back from forgiving sometimes, we say, oh, I can't forgive him, I can't forgive her, is because we think that saying I forgive you means I trust you. And it doesn't. Forgiveness cannot be earned. It can only be given. It's unconditional. That's what grace is. If we could earn it, it would be grace. When you say, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness, of course he doesn't. That's why it's grace. If he deserved it, it wouldn't be called grace. It wouldn't be called forgiveness. You don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve forgiveness. That's why it's forgiveness. It's not a debt that we've paid off. It's a debt that's been canceled because of someone's love for us, because of someone's love for God. Now, trust is different. Trust cannot be given freely. It can only be earned. If you just willy-nilly give instant, full trust to everybody, you're going to get wounded a lot. It's a reckless way to live. It's an unwise way to live. Trust has to be earned. Now, that doesn't mean we live life skeptical of everybody, putting everybody through the ringer, trying to make them over and over prove their loyalty. God didn't want us to live that way. But he wants us, with grace, tempered by a lot of grace and patience, he wants us to have the common sense to know if, if, if a person consistently is wounding others, I need to be careful. If Alexander the coppersmith comes in my life, I'm going to get my copper done by somebody else. You know, it's like I'm going to just watch out. So we need, to, we need to be careful. We just need to be wise. God wants you to be wise. He wants you to forgive quickly. In fact, forgive instantly. But then he, he wants you to trust wisely. So with all that being said, you're like, okay, all right, I think I get it. But again, what about, what about the really bad stuff? I mean, what about like the, 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 the lady from the last sermon who, I mean, really deep wounds, the evil stuff, the terrible stuff. Does God really want that to be forgiven? Maybe there's like a different word we should use because forgiveness sounds like we're letting them off the hook. And I just don't even think I can bring myself to say it because isn't God a God of justice? Isn't God, doesn't he want to punish people? Isn't God want to make wrongdoers pay for what they've done? So here's the deal. God is a God of justice, but thankfully for all of us, thankfully for all of us, he is a God of grace. 
Because if we all got the justice we deserved, all of us would be in hell. That's the truth of the Bible. Nobody deserves heaven but Jesus. And he came and willingly gave up everything he deserved to take on the pain and the shame of our sin so that we could be made right with God and that we could live freely on, in him on this earth and with him forever in heaven. I meant that should, that should make us want to just constantly err on the side of grace. But I still get it. You look around and you're like, man, there's some things that are just so wrong. I don't know. Is forgiveness the right thing to do in those situations? When, when people wound you in such evil ways, this wasn't like an accidental wounding. This was a malicious wound. Well, the Bible, thankfully, tells us, shows us what to do in those situations. And I'm so thankful that the Bible is so relational. It doesn't just tell us, you know, here's five points for this and three steps to that. Most of what the Bible teaches us, it teaches us in the, in the context of a real person's real life and a real person's real relationships. And as it comes to this, how do I forgive the really big stuff? The real person that I like to look at in the Bible, even though there are a lot of examples, is a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph. Not Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, but Joseph, Joseph in the book of Genesis. One of the longest narratives the Bible records is about this guy named Joseph, who was wounded and wronged in every way you can imagine. So here's kind of the nutshell version of his story. So Joseph had a bunch of brothers. He was, he was like on the younger, almost the youngest of a whole bunch of brothers, and he was daddy's favorite, right? Like they hate, so don't play favorites don't play favorites with your kids, right? It never, never ends well. But Jacob, Joseph's dad, he did. He, he made that mistake. It's like Joseph could do no wrong. Joseph was daddy's favorite. And so his brothers just kind of like hated him for it. And eventually they hated him so much that picking on him wasn't enough. They're like, we've got to get rid of this guy. And they hatched a plan to actually kill their brother. Kill him. So they, they take him out into the desert they tie him up. They throw him down into a well. And then they're talking about, like, should we just let him die down there? Should we pull him up and kill him? And then put him down there? What should we do? And he's down there listening to this. He's listening to his brothers plot his murder. And then one of them has an idea. Well, why kill him when we can get something for him? There was a, uh, some nomads traveling by. We could sell him as a slave to these nomads. So they pull up their own brother and they sell their own brother as a slave. Now, that's, that's messed up. All right. I don't know what happened around your house at Christmas, but probably as much drama as you've got with your siblings, none of them have tried to kill you or sell you or any of that. So you're already doing better than Joseph. Joseph is now in shackles, 17 years old, being hauled away to be sold on an auction block in Egypt. And he's got to be thinking, God, why have you put me here? Why did you allow this to happen? God, I thought you loved me. I thought you had a plan for me. I thought you were with me, and this feels like you've abandoned me. But Joseph refused to let his heart grow bitter. He's like, Lord, I know that you didn't cause this evil, but I know that you're with me, and I know that you're good, and I know that you're in control, and one day you'll set all things right, make all things new, and until then, I'm going to trust your plan, even though I don't understand it. So Joseph finds himself as a servant against his will, and he's like, well, that's what I'm here to do, that I'm going to be the best one I can be. And he started working hard, and at the house of an Egyptian nobleman named Potiphar, and he rose in prominence in that house until Potiphar's wife she was like, you know, taking notice of this, this young, well-built Hebrew kid. And we don't know Potiphar's wife's name. I call her Hotifer. So Hotifer is like putting the moves on Joseph, trying to seduce him. And really, this kid could be thinking, I've never had anything go right for me. Why don't I just do something that feels good? I mean, 
What's, who's going to know? But Joseph was a man of character and faith and principle. And he looked this woman in the eyes and he said, there's no way that I would do that. Because it goes against my faith. It goes against my beliefs, my principles. I would not bring dishonor on my God, on myself, or on you, or on your husband by doing this sin. So she is so offended by his refusal that she makes up a story, accuses Joseph of attempted rape, and he gets thrown into prison. This isn't like cable TV prison. This is like sleeping on a rock, Egyptian, ancient prison. This is not a place anybody wants to be. This is the point where most of us would have lost all hope, I think. Joseph's saying, all right, I've been sold by my own family, and then I tried to make good with that, and now I've been falsely accused, and I'm the only place in this whole country that's worse than being a slave. I'm in an Egyptian prison. God, if you're real, I'm out, because they say you're good, they say you're powerful, and you've let this happen to me, and I'm out. But Joseph didn't. He refused to let bitterness take root in his heart, and he said, I don't pretend to understand this why this injustice has happened. But I know that God is the God of justice. And one day he'll make all things new and set all things right. And until then, even though I don't see his plan, I'm gonna trust him. And even if I die in this prison, I know my God is a God of eternity. And all I have is this limited human perspective of one short lifetime. And no matter what, I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna praise him. And if he's got me in a prison, I'm gonna be the best prisoner here. And he was. And he worked for the warden and he served the people around him and his reputation grew and he, he kind of had prominence within the prison and through a miraculous set of circumstances, God released him from that prison, gave him favor with the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh placed him, Joseph, in charge of the whole nation of Egypt. Joseph became the second most powerful man in the world. He had gone from slave to prisoner to king. And that would be a great end of the story. But it's not the end. So now Joseph is a king. Joseph is a ruler. Joseph is using his wisdom to govern this whole nation. And he helps them store up in this good economy for a time of famine. And when famine comes, Egypt is the only country in the ancient world that has the food to to survive. And so people from all other lands start coming into Egypt to get food. And who shows up in Joseph's palace? Who could write this script but God? Joseph's brothers. The same ones who sold him into slavery decades ago walk into his palace and they don't recognize him because he doesn't look like that scrawny Hebrew kid anymore. He looks like an Egyptian king. His head is shaved. He's wearing the gold. He's got, he's got the makeup that those guys wore for some reason. I don't understand it, but it's what they did. He had the whole garb, servants all around him and he's speaking to them in Egyptian and he sees his brothers and he goes off into his own private chambers and he weeps. And then he composes himself and he comes back to them. And I bet you could have heard a pin drop when he started speaking to his brothers in Hebrew and says, do you know who I am? Do you recognize my voice? I am Joseph. And these guys thought their lives were over. Like this is it. God has delivered us into the hands of the judge. This is ultimate judgment, smackdown, revenge story. This is it. We're going to be tortured and executed for the rest of our lives, and it's what we deserve. And Joseph had the power to do that in a, in a snap of his fingers. But that's not what he did, because you see, in those decades of waiting, he hadn't been playing the revenge reel in his mind, but he had kept his eyes focused on God. God, I know you're going to do something in this. And it had allowed no bitterness to take root in his heart. And so he looked at his brothers who thought their lives were over, and he looked at them and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. And then he says to them what I think are some of the most powerful words 
anywhere. Every time I read these words, it, it gives me goosebumps to think about to think about the humanity of to think about him looking at his brothers, his brothers weeping, his brothers who've been carrying this guilt and this shame over what they did for so long, to come to this moment thinking that it's the end of their story, and for Joseph to look at them and say this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. He restored the relationship with his brothers. The family was restored. He forgave them. And it began a new chapter, a new chapter in his family's journey, defined by grace, not defined by the shame of what had happened, not defined by bitterness or revenge or regret, but because of the grace that only God can make possible. And because of that single act of grace, history was changed. Because you see, Joseph's dad, his brother's dad, was a man named Jacob a man whose name God would later change to Israel. And those sons, those brothers of Joseph that betrayed him, that sold him, that Joseph could have killed right then, having done so, would have ended an entire nation. Because those 12 brothers went on to become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, through whom the kings came, King David, King Solomon. And a thousand years later, in a stable in a town called Bethlehem, the city of David, a descendant of that family, that family that could have ended by execution had there not been an act of grace. A king who would bring hope and joy and grace to the whole world was born. And that story of grace continues today. It continues for you. It continues for me, for all who will receive it. So no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, You can leave here today with a new identity because the Bible says we are a new creation in Christ, adopted, made new. Our very soul's DNA changes when we put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. And all that pain that we've carried and all that regret and shame that we've carried, we can let go. And I'm telling you, it's the lightest and freest feeling in the world. And that's what God wants for you. That's what he gave his life for you you and I to experience. So how does that relate to how we interact with other people. We do what Joseph did, and this is the final little principle. It's don't treat people the way people treat you. Treat people the way God treats you. That's the only way Joseph could forgive. He didn't give his brothers what his brothers deserved. He gave his brothers what God had given to him. If we live in a world where we keep score, I'm gonna be good to you if you're good to me. I'm gonna hurt you if you hurt me. Everybody loses. But if we say, God gave me his best when I was at my worst, and I wanna do the same for others, Everybody wins. Everybody can experience that healing and that freedom. And you can live, man, you can live the life that God has for you. So as I pray, I want to pray for those of you who don't yet know Jesus in that saving way. You, you haven't experienced his grace as the free gift that it is. You still believe the lie that, that it's a religious treadmill you have to climb on and somehow earn your way to him. But none of us can earn it. That's the beauty of it. Nobody deserves forgiveness, but he offers it freely, and it can be yours today for the taking. But I also want to pray for those of us today that are still holding on to to some bitterness, and we need to let go. We need to let go of some anger that we're holding towards other people or maybe even holding toward ourselves and experience that grace that he gave his life for us to experience. There's nothing in the world like it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love how you lavish it on us, how you give so freely. 
that no matter where we've been or what we've done, we can't outrun your love. We can't undo the grace that you gave your life to give to us. So Lord, for anyone here today that has not experienced that, that hasn't received it, I pray that in their own words, their own heart, they'd pray a prayer like this. Jesus, save me. Forgive me of the way that I've lived. I've I've lived wrong. I've lived my own way and I want to live your way. Lord, help me to follow you. Help me to live for you. Help me to forgive like you forgive. Thank you for adopting me into your family. For all of us, Lord, that, that are carrying pain, anger, regret. God, help us just gently pry our fingers off of that and experience instead the freedom and the life that you want to give us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.